Well, good evening, friends. Um, we are just going to continue in our uh, message series to the Gospel of Mark. Matt was with us last week, and he uh, preached to us um, regarding the Sabbath. And so we're just going to continue on. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3, verses 13 through 19. So I'm going to go ahead and read the text for us. Here are the words of God. And Jesus went up on the mountain and summoned those whom he himself wanted. And they came. And he appointed twelve so that they would be with him and that he could send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. And he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter. And James, the son of Zebedee. And John, the brother of James. To them Jesus gave the name Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. And Andrew, and Philip, and Bartholomew, and Matthew, and Thomas, and James the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this text. We thank you, Lord, for this list of ordinary men. We're intrigued by your disciples, Lord. We're intrigued by your choice of these men. We want to know why. There's really nothing extraordinary about them. Yet, Lord, we know from the text that you called them first and foremost to be with you. And so, Holy Spirit, give us understanding. And help us now, encourage our hearts, and show us what it means to be numbered among such men. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So there's good reason to believe as we come to this portion of the text and in the life and ministry of Jesus that we're about a year or a year and a half into Jesus' formal ministry. Um, There's actually quite a few disciples. There's lots of disciples following Jesus. And the apostles have been numbered as Jesus' disciples. In fact, in Luke 10, Luke records for us that there was one time where Jesus actually sent out 70 men. 70 disciples. But it's here at this point in time in Jesus' ministry that he is going to select 12. Now these 12 men minus Judas, so 11, were going to become pillars of the church. And the Apostle Paul in his letter to the Ephesians actually tells us that these apostles would be counted, just like the Old Testament prophets, as the very foundation of the church, with Jesus being the chief cornerstone. And so Jesus is about to choose 12 representatives that we're going to have a special place in the church. Now, I don't know if many of you knew, I I grew up in the church. I grew up going to the Catholic church. And I remember we would go to Mass. And I also remember in my uh, teen years, we would go to the cathedral in Tucson, Arizona, because I lived in a town. And I remember the statues of the apostles in our own church and and in some of the cathedrals. And I had this larger-than-life view of these apostles. 
I remember these men who, um, growing up, they had saint in front of their names. Saint Peter and Saint John. And I thought, what did these guys have to do to have the title saint in front of their name? These guys must be really special is what I thought. They must have done something really good to impress Jesus to gain this sort of notoriety and this sort of veneration. I thought, who are these guys? And for those of you who know, my own faith became living between the ages of 18 and 19. And little did I know I had a lot more in common with these men than I could have ever thought. They were quite ordinary. Now, when Paul wrote his letter to the Corinthians, he's rebuking this church for their divisiveness, their arrogance, and their pride. And here's what he writes to them, kind of as a father chastising the children for their pride. He says, I want you guys to consider your calling. Listen up, Corinthians. Consider your calling. Not many of you were wise according to the flesh, and not many of you were noble. Just remember that God has chosen the foolish things of this world to shame the wise, and he has chosen the weak things of the world to shame things which are strong. In the grand scheme of things, friends, God has this tendency to defy all human conventions. He's about to choose 12 men who in the eyes of the world really aren't very wise or smart or noble. But Jesus does something interesting. Before he actually picks them, Luke, Luke tells us what Jesus actually does before he picks these men. In verse 12, uh, um, the Gospel of Luke chapter 10, Jesus went to the mountain to pray, Luke tells us, and he prayed all night. Jesus prayed all night, and then when the day came, that's when he chose the disciples. Now let me ask you guys, if you were in charge, and you were going to pick 12 people to train for the most powerful movement that the world has ever seen, how would you begin your process? Most of us would not go to prayer. And most of us would not pray all night. Perhaps we would start taking applications. We would have people submit resumes. We would um, conduct interviews. Why? Because we're looking for people who have something to offer us. But when you think of it, what of you, who of us has anything to offer Jesus? And so... As a side note, 2,000 years later, we're still reaping the benefits of Jesus' prayer to the Father to reveal to him whom he should choose for his apostles. And so Jesus picks 12 men. Now, the list of the 12 is actually recorded in all the synoptic gospels, and we have a fourth one in the book of Acts. So Luke gives us two accounts of how many apostles are there. And when we read it, There's usually three groupings, three groups of four. In the first group, we have Simon, also called Peter, James and John, who were the brothers, and then Andrew. Typically, because Peter is listed first, he's the leader of the group. The next group is Philip, Bartholomew, also known as Nathaniel, Matthew, and Thomas. And then the third group, which is James, the son of Alphaeus. Then you have Thaddeus, who also goes by Lebius, who also goes by Judas, and then Simon, who's a zealot, and then Judas Iscariot. Now, if somebody ever tells you that 
the Bible can't be true because the lists aren't always the same. Well, it's because sometimes one man goes by more than one name, okay? And so these groups are always listed in that order. The first person in each group is always listed first, but there's variations amongst how after um, the first person listed that there's variations to how the gospel writers will list their names. And so this is what we have. Peter is always first, indicating his prominence, and Judas is always last for obvious reasons. He's the one every gospel writer says, the traitor. All right. And so how do you preach a sermon that gives you just a list of men? Well, what you do is you share with the congregation how ordinary and how quirky these men were. Um, It would be great to do a personality profile. Maybe Myers-Briggs. I tried to look the Enneagram number up for these guys. I couldn't find it. All right, but it's very interesting when we look into what were these guys like? Who were these Navy SEALs of the kingdom of God disguised as the clowns from the Ringling Barnum and Brothers Circus? Because that's what to the world these men looked like. Jesus was not the conventional rabbi who lined up the best of the best and the smartest. He sought the will of the Father and he chose those whom the Father revealed to him. And so let's look at these men and see what they were like. The first four men were all fishermen. And of course, the ringleader was Peter. His name was Simon. That was his common name. Jesus changed his name to Peter, which means rock. And if you read the gospel accounts, oftentimes when Jesus is talking to Peter, if he's using his name just for the common and ordinary use. So a few chapters ago, we saw that Jesus healed Simon's mother-in-law. Jesus also calls him Simon when he's blundering or making mishaps. He calls him Peter when he gets it right. It's interesting the way that comes out in the text. Peter was eager, he was bold, he was aggressive, and he was outspoken. He was the kind of guy who couldn't sit down and couldn't shut up. He loved Jesus fiercely, but he often didn't think before he spoke. He was a ready, fire, aim sort of guy. He was either, and here's your good pun, walking on water or drowning. That's Peter's personality. Jesus praised him when Jesus said, who do people say that I am? Who do you say that I am? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And then he says, blessed are you, Peter. But then he rebukes Peter. Why? Because he told Peter that he had to die. And Peter said, no way, Lord, you're not going to die. And what does Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. Hot and cold. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter was willing to pull out a sword and chop off the ear of a man who was going to come and take his Lord. And then moments later, he couldn't even tell a little girl that he was a disciple of Jesus. Peter had high highs and low lows. And he was perhaps Jesus' best friend. That's Peter. Andrew was Peter's brother. He is the least known to us from the group of the first four. But we learn in John's gospel that it was actually Andrew who brought Peter to Jesus and introduced them. It was also Andrew who brought the little boy to Jesus who had five loaves and two fish. 
In another account, there were some Greeks who wanted to come meet Jesus. And these Greeks approached Philip, which we'll talk about in a minute. And Philip didn't take them to Jesus. Philip took them to Andrew. And then Andrew and Philip took these Greek men to meet Jesus. Andrew had a knack for bringing people to Jesus. And he was a guy who seemed to be okay with being a person in the background. And I'm glad he needed to be because Peter, James, and John were pretty dominant personalities. And so now we come to James and John. They were also fishermen. James was older. These men were the sons of Zebedee. Their father was most likely a well-to-do fisherman, actually a businessman in the fishing industry. Church history suggests that Zebedee came from a Levite family, meaning he had close ties to the priest. This means the Zebedee family had prestige and status in the community. Jesus nicknamed James and John the sons of thunder. And when Jesus names you, he knows what he's talking about. In Luke 9, John, the younger brother, comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, there's a man casting out demons in your name and we tried to get him to stop. And Jesus is like, if he's not against us, he's for us. John wanted them to stop because he wasn't hanging out with them. And then immediately after that, Luke records that Jesus had sent some messengers ahead to a Samaritan village to make arrangements for Jesus to stay the night. And the people in the Samaritan village rejected their request and they came back. And James and John say, Jesus, do we want to rain down fire on them? This is James and John. And in another incident found later in Mark's gospel, which we'll get to, James and John ask Jesus if in his kingdom, one can sit at his right hand and one can sit on his left. And then here's what I love about the gospel. They give embarrassing details. So in Matthew's account of that episode, it's actually Salome, which is their mother, who makes the request to Jesus. James and John had their mom go and ask Jesus if one can sit at your right hand and one can sit at your left. It often made me think of when my wife used to teach at Trinity Academy and grades came out. There was a lot of moms in her office trying to get their kids to get a grade that they didn't earn or deserve. But this was James and John. They seemed to clamor for status and for power. Then we come to the next group, which was led by Philip. His name appears first on the second list of men all the time. He was probably their leader. He was from Bethsaida, just like Peter and Andrew. And there's evidence that him, along with Thomas and Nathaniel, were also fishermen. We get this hint in the Gospel of John. The synoptics don't give us, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, any information about Philip. So anything we know about him comes from John's Gospel. It seems that Philip is a little indecisive and a little negative. So, I, so those of you who are indecisive and negative, you're a Philip. So in John chapter 6, the multitudes are coming to Jesus, and Jesus sees them coming, and he wants to test Philip. And so he looks to Philip. Um, some people say that Philip was the bean counter. They said, where are we to buy bread? This is the question Jesus asked, so that these people can eat. And Philip's like, 200 denarii is not going to be enough bread to give even a little bit. All right, he's a little, he's a little negative. He's basically saying, I don't know how we're going to do this, Jesus. He's that guy in the meeting. 
And earlier I had told you about those Greek men who had come to Philip. Philip didn't know what to do. He's like, Andrew, do you have any idea? Andrew was the guy who was always taking people to Jesus. Philip didn't, or didn't know how to cut out the middleman. <laughs> he just took him to Andrew, and Andrew took him to Jesus. And then in John chapter 14, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father, and that's enough for us. He's kind of like Thomas. I I need to see. Show me. And Jesus says, have I been with you so long, and you have not yet come to know me, Philip? There's similar personalities between Philip and Thomas. And then we come to Nathaniel, also known as Bartholomew, or in the Hebrew would be Bartolomei, son of Ptolemy. <clears throat> he was from Cana, which is where Jesus did his first miracle. Philip and Nathaniel seem to be close friends. And we see Nathaniel in the first chapter of John's gospel. And... <laughs> Philip comes and tells Nathanael, we found him. We, we found the Messiah. The one spoken of of Moses and the prophets. It's Jesus of Nazareth. And here's what Nathanael says. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? <laughs> so, we, so he's a bit prejudicial here. All right? He's got this idea that nothing good can come from that dumpy little town. And so in the next moment, though, Jesus identifies this man for who he is. So he comes up. And Jesus says to him, this man is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. Have any of you have ever had a friend good enough to tell you the truth? I think this was Nathaniel. You need a Nathaniel in your life who's just going to tell you like it is. I think this is what Jesus meant. An Israel who knows in whom there is no deceit. And then Nathaniel says to Jesus, well, how do you know me? So obviously Jesus had some insight to who Nathanael was. And Jesus says, well, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And so whatever was going on there, Nathanael was under the impression that nobody should have known what I was doing. So he believed. But he was somebody, an Israelite, in whom there was no deceit. He was that truth-telling friend that we all need. And then we come to Matthew He's the tax collector. Now, we know that Matthew, as a tax collector, was one of the most despised among the Jews. And Matthew receives Jesus immediately. He invites Jesus over to dinner, as we've already heard, to meet with his slimy friends, as we might call them. He wrote the gospel that bears his name, and he only mentions himself when Jesus called him and on the list of the disciples. And I think Matthew's humility is an indication of the fact that until Jesus, no religious leader had ever put any interest in him. And then we come to Thomas, which many come to know as Thomas the doubter. You don't be a doubting Thomas is kind of the phrase. I, uh, one author convinced me that Thomas was probably more of a pessimist than a doubter. In John chapter 11, do you guys remember when they got word that Lazarus was sick? And then Jesus waited two more days before he left. And then he told his disciples, no, he's not sick. He's dead. Let's go back. Now, you have to remember, this was the last two weeks of Jesus' life. So things were pretty um, heated. And here's what, after Jesus said that, Thomas says, well, let's go and die with him. (laughs) 
That's what he said. Let's go die with him. Like nothing like, well, we'll see what happens. No, he was just, we're going to go die with him. I don't know what it was, but that was kind of his attitude. And so uh, then if you remember in that same episode where he's talking to Philip, he says, don't let your hearts be troubled. That is, Jesus says that. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go prepare a place for you. If I go prepare a place for you, I will come and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And what does Thomas say? Lord, we don't know where you're going. How are we going to know the way? And then Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. And then, of course, Thomas is unwilling to believe in the resurrected Jesus until he can see. And so he's kind of maybe a doubter, maybe a pessimist. We come to the last group. Um, No, we come to James. He's the son of Alphaeus. We have Simon, the zealot, Thaddeus. We know very little about these men. And so what we know from James, the son of Alphaeus, he was also known as James the lesser. In the Greek, that word is mikros, which means little. So it could either be James of little stature, he might have been a short man, or it could have just been, this is the lesser James of the, of the two disciples. The more prominent James was the son of Zebedee. So it could be taken in either way. We know, um, all we know of him is in Mark fifteen forty, he had a brother named Joseph because his mother was with Mary Magdalene in Salome, and she was probably one of the women at the cross with Jesus. Simon, he was a zealot. So that's important for us to know. Tells you a bit about his temperament. Okay, he's not a compromiser. He's a black and white guy. They were, zealots were pretty much rabid fundamentalists and ideologues. They were black and white. There was no compromising. They were often violent militant outlaws that hated Rome. So it's good that him and Matthew weren't in the same group. Because Matthew was the Jewish sellout to Rome. But nevertheless, that was Simon. Judas, also known as Thaddeus, also known in, I think, Matthew's account as Lebius. We don't know much about him. He asks Jesus one question in John's gospel, and he simply says, um, this is an interesting, Jesus says, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me, and he who loves me will be beloved by my Father, and I will love him and will disclose myself to him. And then Judas And John notes, not Iscariot, which means Thaddeus, says, Lord, why are you going to disclose yourself to us and not to the world? He's a little more thoughtful. But nevertheless, that's what we know about Judas, also known as Thaddeus. And then finally, we come to Judas Iscariot, whom we all know was the traitor. These are the men that Jesus called to be with him. Why does he want them to be with him? Because Jesus wants us to do and wanted these men to do what he does, what they saw him doing. These men were going to preach and teach. They were going to exercise demons. And they were going to have a prominent place in the history of the church. But in order to do that, they had to be with Jesus. Being with someone has its effect on you in due time. Isaiah is my son. Isaiah, can you come up here for a minute, buddy? He didn't know I was going to do this. 
he's a cool little dude. I love him a lot. I, he's uh, 10, and when he was little, he didn't like riding in the car, car seat. I don't know if he remembers that, but Ashley would be driving. She used to teach at Trinity Academy. He used to go stay at his grandma's house. And um, she said, I had to pull over because Isaiah is just screaming and crying in his car seat. Um, and he still does that a little bit. Uh, just kidding. A couple of years ago, he graduated to sitting in the front seat with daddy. All right. I, I think earlier than mom was comfortable with, but that's just something dads do. I wanted him to sit in the front with me. But Isaiah... What does daddy do when we drive in the truck? Do you, do, you know, do you know what I'm talking about? When we just drive and I say, why, do you know why I do this? You remember? No. When I'm sitting here, what do I do to you? And I put my arm over here. Play with his ear. So we're just driving in the truck and Isaiah sits in the front and I just go like this. And it dawned on me one day, I go, do you know why I do this to you, Isaiah? And why do I do it to you, buddy? because <laughs> my dad did it to me. You can go sit down, buddy. Thank you. Um, he didn't know I was going to do that. But it was funny because we're driving in the truck and I just, every time we're going, so I'm just playing with his little earlobe, just this weird dad. And, he, and I go, you know why I do this, bud? And you know why I say bud? Because that's what my dad did. When my brother and I were three and five, my dad had this old blue Ford and it was a single cab truck with a bench seat that in those days, the early 80s, you were able just to stand on it while they were driving. <laughs> And my dad, he would just sit there, and he still does it to his grandkids. We don't have to be in the car. He'll just play with your little earlobe. And then he'll say, hey, bud, and he'll tell you some dad joke, and it's wonderful. <clears throat> but being with my dad had its effect and influence on me when my dad wasn't trying to teach me how to rub my kid's ear. It's just what he did, and it's just what I did. But Jesus called these men to be with him because at the end of the day, all disciples learn from other disciples. And Jesus is the chief rabbi who teaches his disciples. And so these men were ordinary. Some of them were despised in their own community. And few of them are quite obscure. They all had their peccadilloes and personalities. But for all being Jewish men, they were actually a very diverse group. Diverse in personality and diverse in ability. And that's good news for you and me because we're often all, not often all, we are all ordinary and we are all quirky in our own sense. But Jesus has called us to be with him. The influence of the apostles even to this day is magnificent. These men were with Jesus and they changed the course of history. Let me go through that really quickly, that list again. I'm going to start with Judas Iscariot because he's our warning. And I want to warn each of us in here that it's possible to be with Jesus for all the wrong reasons. It's possible to say that you believe in Jesus without actually truly knowing Jesus. And so this is the warning that Judas the traitor reminds us. He was with Jesus. And yet in eternity he will not be and is not with Jesus. Let's go now to Peter. Jesus told Peter that he would die as a martyr. Scripture doesn't record for us Peter's death. All the records of early church history indicate that Peter was crucified. And Eusebius, the church historian, tells us that Clement said that Jesus was for, or Peter was forced to watch the crucifixion of his own wife. And when his wife was being led to the cross, 
Peter called her by name and said, remember the Lord. And then it was Peter's turn and he pleaded to be crucified upside down because he didn't believe he was worthy to die in the same way that his Lord did. We don't have any record of Andrew after Pentecost, but church history tells us that Andrew, who was notorious for bringing people to Jesus, led the wife of one of the provincial governors of Rome to Jesus. And this man was infuriated, so he put Andrew to death by hanging him on an X-shaped cross. James is the only one whose death is recorded for us in the book of Acts. He was the first of the apostles to die. And he was killed by Herod. This was the nephew of Herod who put John the Baptist in prison. Eusebius, the same church historian, tells us that when James was being led to the judgment seat, bearing his testimony, the man who was leading him was so moved that he said to James, I am also a Christian. And so they were led away together. And on the way, the the man asked James to forgive him. James kissed him and said, peace be with you. And they were beheaded together. John the Apostle did not die a martyr's death. We know that he was exiled. We know that he became a pillar in the early church. In his gospel, this son of thunder, John's gospel says, I was the disciple whom Jesus loved. At first glance, that sounds a little bit arrogant. But given that John is the only gospel writer to record the washing of the disciples' feet, indicates that this man couldn't believe that this man loved me, that this Jesus would wash my feet. Philip. Tradition tells us that Philip was greatly used in the spread of the gospel in the early church and that he suffered martyrdom. By most accounts, he was put to death by stoning at Heliopolis eight years after the martyrdom of James. So he would have been second in line. Many said that multitudes came to Christ under his preaching. Nathaniel, early church records suggest that he ministered in Persia and India and took the gospel as far as Armenia. There is no reliable record of how he died. One tradition said he was tied up in a sack and cast into the sea. Another tradition says he was crucified. By all accounts, he was martyred. Matthew, tradition tells us that he ministered to Jews both in Israel and abroad for many years. And he was also martyred for his faith Some say it was by being burned at the stake. Thomas, there is a considerable amount of ancient testimony that suggests Thomas took the gospel as far as India. There are churches in South India uh, where roots are traceable to the beginning of the church age. And so this ministry, they said, was founded under Thomas. The strongest traditions say that he was martyred for his faith by having a spear ran through him. James the Less, or James the son of Alphaeus, uh, church history is almost silent about him. Sometimes they seem to get him mixed up with James, the brother of Jesus. But um, there's at least three accounts of his martyrdom. Some say he was stoned, some say he was beaten to death, and others say he was crucified. But nevertheless, he died. Simon the Zealot, Several sources say that after the destruction of Jerusalem, he took the gospel north to the British Isles and was also killed for preaching the gospel. Thaddeus, um, it's said that a few years after Pentecost, he took the gospel north to Edessa, which was a royal city in Mesopotamia. And there's actual accounts in history that he healed the king there, whose name was Abgar. 
and the traditional symbolic um, symbol for Judas was a club because he was clubbed to death. In Acts chapter 4, 13, after Peter was arrested with John, they're standing before the people. And it says, as the people observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that these were uneducated men, they were amazed. And they began to recognize these men as being with Jesus. I think my son Isaiah will remember from being with me that his dad used to do this weird thing with his ear, (laughs) which will be a reminder to me of the time I was with my own father. But more than that, as a husband and as a father and as a minister, I really hope that my time with Jesus will be reflected in how people remember me. I also hope that as a church, that our time together with Jesus will be reflected in how we are remembered. Let's remember that Jesus calls us to be with him first so that then we can carry out the work together that he has given us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this simple and humble account of these ordinary and quirky men. It's amazing, Jesus, that being with you teaches us. It helps us to see more clearly why you came and why we need you. I'm thankful for the legacy, Lord, of these humble disciples who became great apostles, not because of anything good in them, but because they belonged to you, that they were with you, and your Holy Spirit empowered them to do that which you had given them to do. And so in that same power, Jesus, we ask for your presence, mediated by your Holy Spirit through the word, through the sacraments, and through these prayers, that we would know your presence in our lives to be with you, so that we too can be humble servants, ready to do what you have called. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.